Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. I think this might be our first podcast where I'm speaking from a foreign country, so that we're, we're, talking, we're talking together across the bounds of space. Pretty cool. So, Mike, tell everybody where you are. I am in lovely Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Oh, magnifique. Magnifique. I'm enjoying the, the hospitality of our friends to the north, and it is definitely not the great white north this week. No. No, it's... Got a little heat wave action up there, huh? Yeah, it's 85 degrees. It was so hot yesterday, I think it hit the high 80s yesterday, that they had to cancel the Montreal Marathon. Oh, no. That's yeah. sad. Yeah. They had to for can- the runners that prepared so hard. They did, because two years ago, they did it in this kind of heat, and somebody died. <sighs> so they did not want that in their conscience. But it was hot in Waukesha yesterday, too, and they didn't cancel your mar- half marathon, did they? They didn't cancel it, but they did move it an hour earlier. And I did the half marathon, but they gave the marathoners the option of starting an hour earlier than that yeah. if they wanted to. So, yeah, they definitely were accommodating. And it's been a really hot down here, too, Mike. Down here below Canada. It, and it's not so. that far below. We're talking about like two or three differences on the latitude <laughs> scale. Or is that longitude? It's longitude, right? No, latitude is like ladder. So you were correct in your first ah, okay. latitude. Thank you. Well, look at that. We learn something new every day. <laughs> That's right. No, but it has been fun, and uh, Montreal's great. It's a, really, it's a cool city, so much history, and interesting. Plus, everybody's speaking French, so it's fun. It's fun to be in a place where everybody speaks a foreign language. Yeah, fantastic. Yes, but they also speak English, so I don't have to work that hard. Like, it really <laughs> is. Like, I really try to do the English to play thing, because I don't want to be like, hey, bonjour, uh, right. can I get a Big Mac? You know? You don't want to be that American that everybody hates. That doesn't even make the effort. But I am that American that everybody hates, so it doesn't matter. Oh. <laughs> so, no, we're having a great time and uh, having fun. Went to see Notre Dame today and really is a gorgeous Ooh. place. On the lookout for any haunted stories, if I run into anything paranormal, of course I will talk about that. Oh, please do. I was wondering if they had a ghost tour up there. It seems like the kind of place that might. They do have a ghost tour, and the best, it's, its name, too, is really, it's, it's, it's Phantoms Montreal. Ooh. So I'm I'm gonna have to check that out and see if I can find some phantoms for myself. <laughs> yes. Well, good luck with that. Thanks. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your vacation there. I will. Well, the thing is, what I really can't wait to get back from vacation. I'll tell you why. Because Thursday we have our Patreon hangout. Oh, I am so excited. This is becoming my favorite event each month. Yeah. Social event, I should say. And with the way that we couldn't get the internet working tonight, so let me just describe how we're doing the podcast tonight. I've got a phone (laughs) to my ear while I'm speaking into a microphone to Wendy here. And so I'll be glad to be home that I can get the internet working correctly, that we can hang out with our Patreons and talk about the coolest paranormal stuff that's happening. Yeah. I visited some more paranormal sites over the, the past week. So I'm going to be talking about that some in the Chicago area. Nice. Well, that's, that's a great way to set up the, the fact that we'll be appearing at the Chicago Paranormal Convention on October 7th and 8th. Yes. And we'll be performing at the Chicago Convention, the party on the 7th. So if you guys are going, make sure you come to see Mike and Wendy from Sunspot play you guys some paranormal songs. 
And speaking of which, we're going to be playing somewhere else really soon, even sooner than that. Oh my God, we are. I'm, I'm, I'm on. I have my vacation mind, so I'm not even thinking about work. So where are we going to be? <laughs> you are. You're way ahead. You're thinking yeah. way ahead, but that's a good thing because there's a lot of cool and exciting events. But you and I are going to participate in the world's largest ghost hunt next weekend, and that's taking place well all over the world. But uh, one of the locations is at the old Baraboo Inn. Oh, the OBI. Yes. And they've got a ton of different people with ghost hunting expertise that are going to be there. And they're going to be live casting the whole thing. And it's just it's kind of a neat concept where uh, they've got someone at a headquarters in, I believe, New Orleans. Yes, it is New Orleans. Who will be leading the event. And they're having everybody at these various haunted locations all over the world perform the same exact process. Ghost rituals at once. Yeah, they're going to, you know, use the same techniques and the same equipment. And they're trying to, I guess, I don't want to say open a portal. (laughs) We're all going to be doing the same kind of oogity boogity together. Exactly. And they've had psychic mediums that have been preparing those on the other side to say, hey, on this date at this time, we're going to all be very receptive and open. And if you want to say something, you know, Here's your chance. Please do. So anyway, we'll be there to witness it and to report back to you how that goes. I believe there's still tickets available at Old Baraboo Inn. And we're going to play after the ghost hunt happens. So they're going to kind of report everything to the public and it'll be open to anyone who wants to come at that point. And then we're going to play some See You on the Other Side songs, Mike. That sounds good to me. And also that's going to be fun because the actual medium that's heading up the headquarters is from Wisconsin, Scotty Rorick. And he's going to be in the podcast next week, too. So it's going to be a very world's largest ghost hunt. We're going to be giving you the Guinness Book of World Records excitement play-by-plays for next week's podcast. So it's going to be something to look forward to. Absolutely. All right. So the OBI is going to be fun. And the Patreon Hangout is going to be fun. But, you know, we're talking about Thursday night for the Patreon Hangout. We're talking about Saturday night for the world's biggest ghost hunt. Wendy, if I want to do something fun on Friday night... What would I do on Friday? On Friday, I don't know. What would you do, Mike? I would go see Flatliners. <laughs> I was thinking ghost tour, but <laughs> yeah, no, you could do ghost tours too. But no, Flatliners comes out on Friday. So Flatliners is yes. a remake, right? I was gonna say it comes out again, again. So if you guys aren't familiar with the original, Flatliners is from 1990. And it stars my man, Kiefer Sutherland. Oh, yeah. And his girlfriend at the time, his fiance at the time, Julia Roberts. Of course, the third guy in there is Kevin Bacon. And oh, yeah. We're going to put the, <laughs> we're gonna have to put the trailer in there because Kevin Bacon just has this wonderful, it's not quite a mullet. Like, it's, it's, it's a little past right. the mullet. Like, it's not just business in front and party in the back, but it is no. the full it's, 1990 look. It's kind of party everywhere, front and back. It's everything you love about Kevin Bacon in a hairstyle. So it's Kevin Bacon, Kiefer Sutherland, Julia Roberts. Now, it's got somebody who I think is completely underappreciated, and that is Oliver Platt. He's the the chunky guy. He's got longish hair, too. Yeah. Oliver Platt would go on to be uh, Porthos. And so just three years later, was it three years later? Oh, my God. Only three years later, they made the Disney version of The Three Musketeers. So that has Kiefer Sutherland as Athos. It's got Oliver Platt as Porthos. And it's got Charlie Sheen. And they did it all for one. All for love. And who's in the, who does the song? Okay, so that song. Let's, so Disney paid 
three male singers to be the three Musketeers for that. So that was Sting, Brian Adams, oh my gosh. and Rod Stewart. All-star lineup for yeah, that one. All for, all for one, all for love. <laughs> so love the Three Musketeers. I love uh, Kiefer. Now I like Kiefer Sutherland in general. I think he's a great actor. And we go back to Flatliners. He plays a really intense character in that movie, doesn't he? Oh goodness, yes. So he's the main guy, and he's basically he's a medical student who's trying to find out what happens after you die. And so the idea behind the movie is they give themselves near death experiences intentionally, right? So they put themselves into a coma. They have a medically induced coma to kill themselves and then resuscitate. And Kiefer is like the main instigator behind that. He's the main character. And so you just were in Chicago this weekend looking at Paranormal Sites. So this was shot in Loyola in Chicago. And it's fantastic. The setting is incredible. Makes you go, I want to go to that college. Right. (laughs) And also the cinematographer is Jan DeBont. And Jan DeBont is also the guy that did, he directed Speed. Uh, he directed a horrible version of The Haunting in 1999 with Owen Wilson. <laughs> um, he directed Twister. Remember Twister? Oh, yeah. Of course. Flying Cow. That's right. And so Jan de Bond, like as a director, he's a little, uh, you know, uh, win some, lose some. But as a cinematographer, he's, I mean, he's, he was a cinematographer behind Die Hard. He's a cinematographer behind The Hunt for Red October. Cinematographer behind Basic Instinct. So he's the guy that captured the whole sequence with Sharon Stone crossing her legs. Um, he, he really uh, is known for being an awesome cinematographer. And so he, he helps create that atmosphere that's so incredible for Flatliners, shot at Loyola University. And of course, the director is Joel Schumacher. Mm-hmm. who's kind of, you know, like we think of Joel Schumacher now as the guy that destroyed Batman because he, he directed Batman Aww. and he directed Batman and Robin. And, I mean, Batman and Robin is the movie that made sure that we didn't see any comic book movies for like four years. <laughs> so he directs that piece of crap, Batman and Robin, you know, with Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> going, cool party, ice to see you. You know, it was so, I mean, Batman was horrible. And Joel Schumacher, that's his fault. <laughs> <laughs> but, be- I mean, before Joe Schumacher was crap, he did uh, Flatliners, which is great. And he also did The Lost Boys. Uh-huh. Yes. Such a great movie. I believe we've discussed The Lost Boys ad nauseum yeah. on the podcast because it's one of my favorites. And that really cool movie poster they had. Right. And the movie poster that sat on my wall until I was like 32. Yes. <laughs> I think I still have the movie poster. But The Lost Boys is the best, right? Uh, sleep all day, party all night. It's good to be a vampire. And so Joe Schumacher, <laughs> so he reconnects with Kiefer for his next movie after The Lost. And The Lost Boys is a huge hit. And The Lost Boys is a little old. We were a little young for it when it came out. Like it was R-rated, so we couldn't get to see it in the movie theater. At least I couldn't. But Flatliners came out just when, you know, so it comes out, uh, uh, you know, September 1990. And I am 13 years old. And this is eighth grade for me. And I can finally go see, like my parents, let me go see a horror movie in the movie theater with my friends without them being there, you know? Very exciting. And not just at budget. It's a you, milestone. At the budget cinema, we could basically go see whatever we wanted, you know, because it'd be like <laughs> it was a buck. And they just, my parents would just be like, go in there, see some movie, just get out, you know, get lost for an hour. Yeah. But this would be something we could see in the first run, a horror movie with your friends. And so Flatliners is like one of the first movies I saw in the movie theater with my friends. As a like a horror cool. movie, as in a as a budding adult, so that's why it has a special 
connotation in, in my heart for me. What was your impression of it as a child that age? Well, I thought it was awesome. Did it freak you out? Or, I mean, because yeah. it's got a lot of scary elements to it. And then there's also a lot of paranormal or supernatural kind of elements to it. Well, you know, it didn't freak me out too bad because I was only 13 years old at the time. And, you know, when I think about the message of the film, and, and this is going to the, the author of the film is a guy named Peter Filardi. And I was reading an interview with Peter Filardi this week. Uh, it's an older interview. Um, but he's talking about what made him want to write Flatliners. And he goes in, and, and this is, I'll, I'll, I'll attach this back to what I thought of the movie as a kid and why it scared me, but it didn't scare me yeah. that bad. Okay. I was trying to find the new frontier, he says. The West had been done. Space had been done by George Lucas. Wes Craven had explored dreams of Freddy. So what was left? And um, even Kiefer Sutherland says this in the movie. He says, first we had the sea, then America, the West, the moon. Mr. Leary, drugs, the inner journey. Mrs. McLean and our illustrious former first lady, the outer journey. But this, this is ours. So he's trying to say that... Uh, the spiritual journey into finding what happens when you die, they're trying to find that. So that's their specific... Yeah, it's the next frontier. That's their next frontier. And the author, he goes, their biggest conflict is, you know, isn't the danger of what's out there. It's the danger with yourself. And it's accountability. It's you need to be accountable for the actions that you feel in your life. And so he made Flatliners a movie about, hmm. quote unquote, in his words, metaphysical accountability. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, they find cosmic justice. You know, they don't either go to heaven, they don't go to hell. What happens when they die is they face the things they've done in their life. And so that's kind of what makes the movie super interesting. And the thing is, when you see the movie when you're 13 years old, you haven't done anything yet. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I hadn't done anything horrible yet when I was 13 years old. So, uh, it's funny. I said, well, I hadn't done anything horrible yet. <laughs> right. Because you've done so many horrible things since then. Oh. Well, not necessarily. But in the movie, a lot of it is these guys do, I mean, the main, uh, this is a spoiler for a 27-year-old movie before we start <laughs> talking about the new one. Um, I mean, yeah. but Kiefer Sutherland's, what he sees when he dies is this kid that he made fun of. He sees this kid that he mercilessly made fun of and then eventually bullied him. accidentally bullied him, accidentally killed him. Yeah. Well, Mike, I saw it when I was young also, and I don't yeah. remember if I actually saw it in the theater or if I rented it from a, you know the video store or whatever. But it really freaked me out, and it wasn't because of the, you know, you're going to pay for the wrongs that you committed during your life. But I just was freaked out by the concept of people intentionally killing themselves, taking their life away. And then, you know, there's those really scary moments where you're not sure if they're going to be able to bring the person back or not. Right. And just that toying with mortality, taking it into your own hands like that, just, you know, that just scared the heck out of me when I was a kid. Yeah. Well, and originally, too, when I first saw the preview, I thought it was going to be that there's demons on the other side. And because mm -hmm. they come back, because the humans... You know, because they can come back from death, the demons will come with them. So that's originally what I thought it was, was that, um, you know, when you die and come back, then whatever, right. whatever's evil there that's waiting for you yep. gets to come back too. So the idea yeah. that it was just <laughs> like the bad things we've done. But, you know, that's a thing. 
And it's funny, we talk about accountability, and the writer, uh, he talks about his Protestant upbringing, and he says that, you know, I, I felt that in the late 80s and different uh, events that were happening in the world, he talks about Iran-Contra, and he, you know, as any writer, he's going to try to give it some kind of contemporary context. This is what inspired me, to say that Iran-Contra uh-huh. was going to inspire some, you know, cheesy horror movie from, 19, not cheesy, but, you know, a horror movie from 1990, but that's a stretch. But he said that he felt that the people were not taking any accountability for their actions. And so he felt like from his religious upbringing that God is going to make you accountable for your actions. And when you start looking this up online and, and you start you know, doing research, you see people, and this is serious, they're like, where do I find the age of accountability in the Bible? What happens to babies and young children when they die? And... Like, right, that's a great thing to think about. But the idea is, <laughs> right. is that the age of accountability is that if you're before that age, then God doesn't hold you accountable for your sins. So if you commit those sins, but you're before the age of accountability, you still get to go to heaven. And if you don't, oh, I see. then God's going to send you to hell. Hmm. And it's funny because when you look online, you see all these people talking about it. And it really is people who are scared because their children died or they know children that died. And they're like, will this child still get to go to heaven? No. You know, it, and, that's the, and there was an entire, uh, the concept of purgatory came from that too. So if you guys are not familiar with the concept of purgatory, I mean, most people are familiar with the concept. The idea is you don't go to heaven or hell, but you go to some place where you work out your punishments for a few years until um, you, you're not bad enough to go to hell, but you're not good enough to go to heaven. And so the whole concept of purgatory is made for because uh, religious people had said that the only way you get to go to heaven is through faith you know, if you believe in Jesus or whatever. And so if you didn't get to be baptized, if you didn't get to believe, if you didn't get to go through the whole thing, well, what happens to a baby that's two years old and never got baptized? That dies. That's just, yeah. Right. So that's the whole thing. That's why people were worried. And what are they going to tell? You know, the parents got to tell them something. You know, the, right. the priest got to tell them something because they've been telling them for a long time. They've been like, well, unless you do this kind of stuff, you're going to go to hell. And then they say, well, my kid never did anything wrong. Yeah. But when I was looking for accountability in the afterlife, that was one of the first things. And you see people still today are writing in, wondering if their children will get to go to heaven, even That's though they so never sad. get to go. Yeah, I know. Totally. It's such a downer. But we are talking about what happens when you die and near-death experiences. And so, I mean, Flatliners really takes this on. They really take on the near-death experience. And the idea is when they go flatline, when they die, what they see. And these guys all see these different things they did that were, you know, the bad things they did to people. And, you know, when I was thinking about this episode and stuff and and reliving the movie, I'm thinking about, okay, well, what have I done in the past 27 years since I saw that movie? And I was thinking that, well, I haven't done anything that bad yet. (laughs) Have I done anything that bad in the intervening time? And there's some mean things I've said and things I've said I regret. But like the stuff they do in the movie is oh gosh, like really, yeah. cru- like really <laughs> it's cruel. It's pretty horrible. Like I think the thing I feel the most guilty about is probably at the end of high school, we had a girl in our class that had an affair with one of the teachers. Like and the teacher went to jail and everything, the whole thing. 
and I knew her, and I, I wasn't really friends with her, but like, we knew each other, we were friendly. But I just made some kind of joke, just offhand or said some kind of thing when I was walking behind her, and she just looks at me and goes, Mike, for real? And I'm like, ah, oh, no, sorry. Aww. And I think that was the, like when I think about the meanest thing I've ever done, like even thoughtlessly, <laughs> that is the meanest thing I've ever done because wow, she was taken Mike. advantage of by her teacher. You know, and yeah, that's and sad. Whether, you know, really sad. She was in a whatever happened. You know, she still was in a position where he was a powerful person, and she was not. And she went along with it. It all went, and he took advantage of her in the whole thing, and he went to jail. Um, yeah, but terrible. And I still decided to make a joke about that to the victim. And I was like, "Well, you know what? If if I die and I see that, then uh, I could see that." I mean, I kind of, I said sorry for it at the yeah. time, but I'm like, that was a, I've done a, unintentionally mean things, you know, but that was a, like, that was right. something that for some, I'm just, just thoughtlessly said it. Like, you know, when you talk about being a school kid jerk, like that was my school kid jerk moment. Well, I can think of a lot worse things to fear when that moment arrives. So I think you're in pretty good shape. Yeah. Like I've done, you know, things on an, but like that was one thing. Like like Keith Sutherland killed a kid in the movie. Like he killed somebody. Like, yeah, and the Baldwin guy. Oh, I for, we forgot the Baldwin brother. I, I was talking about <laughs> Oliver Platt because I feel like Oliver Platt's always a second banana in movies, and he never gets his. Crap. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's a good actor. He's always reliably funny, and. Uh, <laughs> but, but that handsome Baldwin guy. Yeah, right. The skinny one. His crime was like videotaping women in the act of right. passion with him. Without them knowing it. So that, that was a pretty creepy. He made surreptitious sex tapes. Oh my God, I almost forgot. It. How did somebody forget about a Baldwin brother like that? <laughs> yeah, so they face these things. But you know, what's weird about the movie, really, and I, since I recently watched it again, mm-hmm. I don't remember these things. It was so long ago, the original time that I saw it. But they do bring back these psychological demons, but they manifest themselves physically in our world here. Because Kiefer Sutherland actually gets physically abused by the kid, you know, that he bullied. Sorry, more spoilers, but... We can spoil a movie that's probably older than most of the audience. (laughs) But I thought that part was really weird because you don't know what's going on. You don't know if they're imagining it. And then they finally, you know, they confirm because his friends are like, what happened to you after the bullied kid comes back and beats him up? Um, So I thought that aspect of it was really the supernatural you know, bringing those things back from the other side or the past into the actual physical world of today. Yeah. was interesting. The thing is, it's a cool movie and it obviously had an effect on us. We still make jokes about it, you know, and we're still talking about it and they're going to, and they're remaking it. And so let's talk about the remake for a second. And the remake has Ellen Page. So Juno, everybody loves Juno. Ellen Page is also in this movie called Super which is directed by the guy James Gunn, who event- he went on to Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh. She is so good and super. Uh, and I love Ellen Page. I think she's awesome. So check her on that. But I like Ellen Page. So she's, she's the star. Like, so she's going to be Kiefer. And then it's got Diego Luna, who is in the Star Wars. Uh, do you see Rogue One in the Star Wars movie? Like the Star Wars movie? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's one of the main characters in Rogue One. He's really good in Rogue One. Um, I really liked Rogue One. I didn't think I'd like it. I thought it was great. But I like Diego Luna. Uh, he's in a really great Mexican movie called uh, Oi Tu Mama Tambien. Oh, I never say this stuff right. I'm always butchering Spanish. <laughs> um, 
but that's a really like masterfully made and powerful movie about uh, friendship and the road and everything like uh, that. Kids in this Mexican okay. film. And, and then it's got some people who I don't know who they are. <laughs> so they might be, <laughs> might be good, okay. might be bad. But it's, it's directed by the guy that directed the first... Um, now, we had our U.S. version of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Lisbeth Slander is the name of the character. She's a hacker, and she joins forces with these guys to figure out some stuff. And they made a movie in the U.S. called The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. But it's based on these um, Scandinavian books. And originally, the movies came out in Sweden or whatever, 10 years ago, called The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, The Girl Who Kicked a Hornet's Nest, so this is the director's first, I think, big American film. Okay. Because uh, he directed... The original Girl with the Dragon, you can see it on Netflix. It's, it's awesome. It's great. It's a great movie. And so it's something everybody, I think, will enjoy if they like thrillers and action and stuff. So he's, he's, we know he can handle it. He's a good director. And this is his first big American movie. And it's, it's not going to be a remake of oh, good. Flatliners. It's a sequel, a stealth sequel. Okay. Because mm. Kiefer Sutherland's in the movie. Yay! And that's not a spoiler because Kiefer Sutherland's been talking about it. Well, that's exciting because I wouldn't really want them to redo it. I thought right. it was done pretty darn well the first time. It's not necessary to redo that story, but it's exciting to think that we'll perhaps learn what those characters went on to yeah, encounter the rest Keith. of their lives. Well, <laughs> you know, and I tell you what, I think Hollywood's getting smarter in that they understand that we don't necessarily want remakes of films. We want the story to continue, and you can kind of remake the film while continuing the story. You know, 30 years later, whatever, you don't have to, like, take the same names. You can do something right. like this where you can integrate a sequel into the whole idea of the remake. And so I think they're getting smarter about this because people always react badly to the idea of a remake. Yeah. You know, we all get mad about it. I mean, think about the Ghostbusters remake. You know, it was a whole thing like, well, it's going to be all weird. It did not go over well. Right. Well, I got politicized in the whole thing. But the idea was is that there's no reason you couldn't have the same actresses starring in a sequel to Ghostbusters. Yeah, right. There was no reason it had to be remade except for the arrogance of the director. (laughs) And, you know, and he, I mean, he, he's the guy that ruined it. It's not the, the actresses were wonderful. The director ruined that movie. But I think that the Hollywood's getting the idea that we don't necessarily want movies to be remakes. We don't want to see the same thing just updated with cuter actors or whatever, or better teeth and hair like they have today. <laughs> we want to see uh, a continuation of a story that we feel invested in. Yeah. And so I want to see what happened to Kiefer. Like, how, let me look how old is Kiefer Sutherland here. Has Kiefer hit 50 yet? Oh, uh, good question. Yes, he has. He turned 50 last December. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Because he's a baby in Flatliners. Right. So he's only 23 years old when they were making that movie. It's hard to think that Kiefer Sutherland was ever 23 years old, but I guess, you know. <laughs> and he is a proud Canadian. Well, actually British. He was born in England, so. But his dad, D- Donald Sutherland is Canadian. And we need to talk about Donald Sutherland in a minute. Because... Half this show is supposed to be about near-death experiences, right? Yes. And we've been talking about the movie, and the movie has our effect on us, and if we think about these things in Kiefer Sutherland, blah, blah, blah. But the whole idea is, is that the exploration of near-death experience on film, and that really was the crux of the movies, that these guys were exploring something that we all want to know about. Is there something evil on the other side? What will happen? What's the accountability? What, you know, will we be forced to face, you know, the things we did in life? The bad thing. And also just 
the curiosity of are we going to see the ones that we love that we lost again? You know, will we have that opportunity to see them again? It's funny because Donald Sutherland, now he was born in 1935. Wow, wow, Donald Sutherland's older than my dad. I didn't know he was older than my dad. But he's obviously been in a million things from Animal House to Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So listen to this. And we'll go through celebrities that had near-death experiences in a little bit. But because we're talking about Kiefer, Mm-hmm. So he's filming this movie in 1969, Kelly's Heroes. It came out in 1970. He had a severe case of meningitis on the set, and his body shuts down. Here's how he describes it. Suddenly the pain, fever, and acute distress seemed to evaporate. I was floating above my body, surrounded by soft blue light. I began to glide down a long tunnel, away from the bed. But suddenly I found myself back in my body. The doctors told me later that I had actually died for a time. And here's how he says, he sent this in a commencement speech at the University of Toronto. If you get on the other side, you're really alone with yourself. One part of my commencement speech said, you have to be honest with yourself. There's no point in not being honest because when you die, you die alone. You want to be at one with yourself and responsible to yourself. You really do not want to have too many regrets. Well, that sounds like great advice at a commencement ceremony right you think right he's gonna go get them kids no but you know you're you're reflecting on where you're going and what your future is going to be like and what kind of life you want to have so that's a very important thing to keep in mind right and the fact that you die alone <sighs> yeah it's true. That, that's a lot but the thing is he had the out-of-body experience so i saw that well, was that's cool. exciting yeah that he i mean that's he, very cool he left his body and well that's the thing with it so when you think about the idea of a near-death experience, Wendy. What do you think about? Well, I always think about the stories you hear of the person describing things kind of closing off, getting darker, and then a light appearing that feels warm and welcoming and calling to them to go toward the light. Yeah. And then you usually hear nice stories about like, you know, choir of angels singing and good, happy feelings. (laughs) Not like flatliners. (laughs) Right. Terror. You don't see the worst um, things you've ever done right away. You'll see yours later. And then the, the stories of the people that are in the hospital, you know, having a surgery or something where they, like you just said, they leave their body and they can see themselves and, you know, the doctors and everybody around them witnessing it as though they were floating above, you know, in the corner or something like that before everything else goes down with the light. Well, you know, it's interesting because there is a doctor by the name of Charles Tart. And he was doing research into the nature of consciousness and like what happens to us, you know, when we die. And he's been doing it since, you know, the 60s. And so speaking of the out-of-body experience, he was doing some things where he would put a number at a place in the room of people that were going into surgery and stuff and seeing if they had out-of-body experiences in case they died. Oh, Yes, I think we talked about that in episode 56, the one about having an out-of-body experience. Ah, we uh, interviewed Luis Monero. Yeah, no, he was a really interesting guy, and I have a hard time believing that was 100 episodes ago. I know, but it's a good one to cross-reference if you feel like checking it out at othersidepodcast.com slash 56. But, you know, one of the things Charles Hart did is that he, you know, he put that five-digit number and... I mean, he writes an article that was published in the Journal of the American Society for Psychic Research, the ASPR, which we've talked about, especially we talked with Nancy Zingroni on uh, parapsychology, Dr. Nancy Zingroni. Um, yes. But anyway, 
uh, Charles Tart documents the out-of-body experience of a young woman who was one of his research subjects. And so what happened was she left her physical body and she read a five-digit number, which was nowhere near her bed. So it was hidden behind something that you could like only view it from the ceiling, right? Correct. And uh, you know the, the odds of guessing it were one in 100,000. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, it is, but people win the lottery. You know, <laughs> that's I mean, true. that is something that happens. But the fact is, like, he's been, he's been working on this, and that's, that's some of the evidence that, you know, out-of-body experiences can happen. Or, you know, people do see things. And we all think about that with the near-death experience. You know, what I think about is that, obviously, the let's go towards the light, right? Right. So, you see a tunnel, and it's interesting. So, when they think about the, the stuff that happens in the near-death experience, is, like, first of all, you start to see tunnel vision, you know, you only see what's in front of you. You start losing the peripheral vision and you see bright light before you. And then your life starts flashing before you arrive. Mm, yes. But you know, this is interesting, I think, because it's not just like your life flashes before your eyes. And it's that people talk about they lose the sense of time. So huh. those moments where they see the most important events of their life, they seem to take forever so you lose your sense of time as you die you know when you get into a position of fight or flight uh in an emergency people talk about time slowing down you heard that before right Mm. oh yeah with adrenaline rush right so time slows down and you know you start being able to interpret things in a much you know at a much more granular level than like even we're talking now and minutes are just passing you know, we're not thinking every second is happening to us and we're not paying attention to every second that happens. But when you get in these types of experiences, time slows down and every second starts happening to you and you start perceiving time differently. So they talk about time, like the perception of time happening differently and tunnel vision and you see a bright light. And then people talk about seeing their family. They see people they know, they show up in heaven. Some people see hell. Oh, no. Yeah. Those are my favorite of the near-death experiences. Oh. Those are your favorite? <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's like... It sounds so scary. Because you think that most people would just have a wish fulfillment. You know what I mean? Oh, I see. Yeah. Seeing what they want to see. So most people would the see what they want to see. Creating something they want to see. And so they would, you know, to make it more believable. So if they just see what they want to see and they make it more believable, then they're just, you know... If they say, like, you know what, I've done some bad things, and so when I had my new death experience, I did not see a tunnel with a light at the end. I saw a tunnel with hell at the end. Ugh. This one girl, Angie Fenimore, attempts suicide in January 1991. She remembers the life review. The, you know, your life flashing before your eyes. This is your life. <laughs> right. But she says that you relive the events from the point of view of the people you interacted with during each of those moments. So you feel how your actions made, oh. made them feel. So that's almost like Flatliners and that she yeah. is forced to feel how she made other people feel. She found herself surrounded in darkness and said that she could see figures of a group like all isolated and alone. And she said that the first thing she thought was, oh... We must be the suicides. And then she came back. You know, so that's what she saw in 1991. And that was, that to me, that almost seems like a flatliners kind of thing. Like being forced to live through, you know, your life, but through the people around you. Yeah, yeah. 
another guy. I mean, this is a good one. Matthew Botsford. He's standing outside an Atlanta restaurant, and he gets shot. He says he remembers feeling a pain like a hot needle driving into his skull. Then he falls, and everything goes black. Uh, the doctors put him in a coma for 27 days to try to save him because he died three times on the way to the hospital. You know, he dies, you bring oh him my. back, and he resuscitated. So he says that he, when, you know, he's shackled at his wrist and his ankles. He's suspended in midair over a deep glowing red pit. Inside oh. the pit, four-legged creatures roam the floor while smoke billows up from the magma below. No. Each plume of smoke contains exactly one tortured soul, suffering all alone. Oh. Stop. Don't really stop. He talks about isolation. He says that all around him hears the screams of millions of damned souls, but it doesn't mean anything because he understands that he's entirely by himself and he will be entirely by himself forever. Until well, a team of demons show up, eat his flesh on the bone, and then it grows back and they eat it again. Oh. Yeah. Well, that's a nice bit of information. Yeah, like so he, um, he saw for real. He saw hell. Like that was that's a, that's that like, sounds horrible. That's like classic style hell. Yeah, you know that's like that's, OG hell. He was there, and his wow. near death experience. Poor guy, that's yeah, terrible. He that's gets shot, and one. then he has to go through that. Should have been nicer. <laughs> Had he lived his life as a bad person. Well, I don't know what he did. Like, none of those details are there. So who knows what happened? Oh. I mean, that's the thing. So people see these different things in near-death experiences. And the thing is, when you start losing oxygen, interestingly enough, when you lose oxygen to the brain, the first thing that starts going is your peripheral vision. So that's one of the explanations of why people might be seeing t a tunnel, because they lose their peripheral vision as they're, you know, about to die. Okay. And... You know, the light, I mean, your eyes are closed the whole time. They don't really, you know, have a good explanation for that, but they do know that your mind's flooded with different kind of chemicals. Mm -hmm. And as your mind's flooded with these different kind of chemicals, you could start seeing hallucinations. I mean, people see hallucinations when they have migraines. Have you ever had a migraine? Yes, I have. Okay, so you've had a real migraine. And so yeah. have you ever experienced weird kind of light effects or anything from that migraine? Oh, yeah. The auras, they call them, where you see kind of like rainbowy blobs when you close your eyes. But the idea, you, you're getting light effects. Yeah. You know, I've never had a real migraine. I've had some headaches. Obviously, I drink a lot. <laughs> but I've never had like a real deal. You know, when people talk about a migraine, they talk about the misery they have and stuff, you know? So to me, that, I, you know, hallucination, you're like, well, how is that going to happen? But I mean, something is impacting your head. So chemicals flood in. And, you know, we talk about out-of-body experiences. Other people have talked about having out-of-body experiences when they're on LSD. Oh, yes. You know, because one, one of the first things when you're on LSD, acid, uh, <laughs> for those of you that don't know what LSD is, <laughs> or magic mushrooms. So, um, or psychedelic. Yeah, yeah psychedelic, psychedelic drugs, psilocybin, peyote, any of the psychedelics. <laughs> The first thing that happens is like you have some kind of disillusion of the self. And I just watched a documentary on Timothy Leary and Ram Das 
on Netflix. Oh. It's a really good documentary, too. It, it, it's, it's fun. a discussion between Timothy Leary and Ram Dass. It's about spirituality and their relationship and their life. And, you know, it's, it's 50 years on from all that kind of, you know, Tim, the controversy of Timothy Leary saying, you know, tune in, turn on, and drop out. And, mm-hmm. and we've talked about Timothy Leary, especially in our LSD episode. That's from the Wayback Files. That's one of our first episodes. <laughs> you know, Journey right. to the Center of the Mind, I think is the name of the episode. And the thing is, is that they talk about the dissolution of the self. The first thing you feel is that you feel connected towards everyone else on the planet. You feel like a loss of yourself as compared to someone else. You feel connected to them. And you get that feeling of, well, there really is no me and there's no you. There's just all of us together. Uh And people talk about that in the near-death experience. They realize that they're personality their their self is just a thing and their soul is something else well that's very lsd man <laughs> that's very <laughs> it is and so when you think of your mind being flooded with chemicals when you die that could be something to do with it now we don't know there's something to do with it yet like there is no definitive science at the end of this i mean dr charles tart had his right we're only working on theories right now yeah, because we don't know what happens because the people who actually get to die don't come back. <laughs> or they might. <laughs> right. You know, through the Ouija board or whatever. And it's funny because, well, this happened in uh, 2014. And so there's a guy named Sam Parnia, Dr. Sam Parnia, and he did the world's largest study of near-death experiences. And I've contacted, I've talked to Dr. Sam Parnia, I tried to get him on the show. We just haven't found a, a time that works. This would obviously be the perfect episode for him because we'd get him to get his oh, review yeah. of Flatliners. Yeah. But he was doing this research at the University of Southampton, and now I think he's at the University of New York, Sunnybrook. But he published this study after he had 2,060 patients from 15 hospitals in the UK, the US, and Austria. And uh, the, the study was awareness during resuscitation. So he's trying to get as many of these people's experiences that were resuscitated on the deathbed. You know, they were dead and they came back to life. And so he's trying to fit, you know, he's trying to get as many of these things not like without an agenda. So he's scientifically investigating. So he just wants to find out what is going to happen. Okay. Not, you know, like Daniel Brinkley, he's a he's a guy. Uh, Raymond Moody, he's a big death, near death experience guy. Yeah. Doctor Elizabeth Kubler, the one who did the five stages of grief, or this, you know, like acceptance. Yeah, yeah. She was also someone who had dealt with people who had a lot of near death experiences. Okay. When I worked with Katie Sai, who's a, a reporter, well, was a reporter in, in Madison, and she had done like a series with Doctor Elizabeth Kubler as Dr. Cooler was approaching death. And she's like, no, 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 she believes okay. in all of it. She believes it, you know. She said she's ran into too many people that have had weird near-death experiences for that just to be, you know, for us to black out and go into nothingness and oblivion when we die. So that's refreshing, I guess, or makes you feel a little better. <laughs> yeah. But I think she was dying at the time, so she could have been one of those stages of grief right there. Mm. So here's what the results of his study, you know, from like the abstract of, you know, Dr. Sam's study, is that in some cases of cardiac arrest, memories of visual awareness compatible with so-called out-of-body experiences may correspond with actual events. So they see things that actually happened while they were dead. So what he's saying is, in some of these cases, 
people saw stuff when they were dead. So after they were declared as being dead, that according they to the seen. medical definition. Yeah. Oh. Uh. So that's interesting. A higher proportion of people may have vivid death experiences, but do not recall them due to the effects of brain injury or sedative drugs and memory circuits. So when we're giving them drugs as they die, you know, people have it, get, they get tons of morphine and the whole thing. Yeah. You just don't remember what happens because you're on drugs. <laughs> right. You know, you're all stoned. Like, so you don't know exactly what, you know, just like it being wasted. You know, when I read about these things in near-death experiences, I don't know if I... How do you how do you think you want to go? Uh, you know, would you want to be completely lucid and face it like that? Oh, I see. Would you want to be sleeping and just not know? Or would you want to be stoned? Well, you're saying the state that you're in prior to death occurring. Yeah. I don't think it matters. I think you're going to go through it and it's going to be the same experience regardless of what state you're in. Yeah, no, that's true. I always think of like, what's the state I want to be in where I want to be the least scared? That to me is like, I want, to be, I want to be the least afraid. That seems like a wise choice. But at the same time, I think once you start going through that door, <laughs> I don't know if your, your normal right. uh, physical emotions and that kind of thing. Apply. Even play. Yeah, exactly. No, but, that's right. I'm with you. I'm with you, Wayne. I just yeah. mean. Yeah. Then obviously I've been thinking about this because I've been researching it for a couple of days because we're talking about yeah, flatline. Yeah. Because we're like, well, well what <laughs> right. did Kiefer feel? What did Kevin Bacon feel? What did Julia Roberts feel, Wendy? Well, to your point, when they did it, they used laughing gas. That was their technique. That's right. They put the laughing gas on and then they stopped the heart and then, you know, they waited for the the flat line and everything. Then they brought them back. So that was their way of like making it less painful, probably. Yeah. You know, so I don't know what I I want done or what happened to me, but uh, (laughs) I guess it doesn't matter because it's going to happen against my will anyway. (laughs) It's gonna go the way it goes. <laughs> yeah, it's not gonna. Yeah. I'm not gonna get a choice in the matter, and I don't think I want a choice in the matter. Yeah, but um, it's really interesting. So he, you know, performs this, and they're trying to, you know, figure this stuff out. And you know, Dr. Parnia, he writes a book called Erasing Death, the science that is rewriting the boundaries between life and death, and that came out in 2013. And he's interviewed on Fresh Fresh Hour. You know, NPR with Terry <laughs> okay. Gross. Oh, yeah. We love him. Everybody loves Terry and Fresh Air. Oh, yeah. That's a great show. But in some of his quotes, he's saying, you know, some of the reason that they're doing this study is that, you know, we have to remember that cardiac arrest is the only condition that will affect every single one of us. I will definitely have a cardiac arrest in my lifetime. You will definitely have a cardiac arrest. And so will everybody who's listening. And so we want to have the best level of care provided for us and we brought back without brain damage. Yeah. So part of this is trying to figure out a way because scientists are redefining how we die all the time. Right. And it's not going to be like fringe or whatever where you can talk to, you know, dead bodies. They have like, you know, they can talk to this dead body 24 hours after he died. But the thing is, if it's just your heart that stops... And they can keep your head alive or they can keep, you know, you can keep everything going. With, and I'm planning on being cryogenically frozen, obviously. <laughs> right. No, I know. You're going to be like in uh, Futurama, the little heads. Yeah. I'm going to be the head. I'm going to be the head of Richard Nixon that comes back and becomes president <laughs> in the year 3000. Uh. But no, but that's the thing. Like, 
you want to have as little brain damage as possible so you're as much as your personality survives because the thing is your heart could stop and they could restart it 15 minutes later. Like event. So that's the thing. And they used to think that your heart would, you know, if your heart stops 30 seconds later, your brain's dead. Yeah. So the definition of being dead just really only applied to the heart. Correct. Cardiac arrest. When your heart stops yeah. beating. I mean, that's when your heart stops beating. And so that's one of the reasons that he did what he was doing. So he could try to figure out, well, what is happening to people when their heart stops and when it stops for a long time and when they're brought back and, you know, what happens if they flatline for an hour and they get brought back. (sighs) And so that's where we're going with that. And I think his research is fascinating. Like it's really, when you talk about near-death experiences, a lot of it gets real new agey. And I think we probably have all met somebody that's had a near-death experience, haven't we? Um... I don't know. I mean, I know we've had a bunch of people on the show that have had near-death experience. Oh, right. Of course. <laughs> but like even in personal life, you get somebody that's like, man, I've seen some stuff. I died now came yeah. back. And you're like, what? And it can yeah. be very credible people that have near-death It's not just, you know, you hate to say wackos, but wackos that have near-death experiences. Well, that can be said of a lot of paranormal things too, though, you know? To me, it's always if they're trying Gross. to sell a book. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're like, okay, <laughs> do you have a book you're trying to sell? Then I'm yeah. all made like, okay, I take your story with a grain of salt because it's like, well, you have a, what are you selling here? But when yeah. you meet somebody that's not selling anything, they're just like, man, I came back from the dead. Yeah, yeah. So Flatliners was great because it explored that near-death experience. You know, from and when you're a kid, you see it, and you're like, oh, God. But that's also, do you ever see the movie The Frighteners with Michael J. Fox? I don't remember. Okay. This is Peter Jackson before he was the Lord of the Rings guy. So Peter Jackson directs a bunch of underground New Zealand movies. He did a live Meet the Feebles, which is like a Muppet parody, super vulgar. It's really funny. And then (laughs) he gets Hollywood money and he directs a movie called The Frighteners. Okay. Oh, he might have done Beautiful Creatures before The Frighteners. I can't remember right now. But either way, he he gets two really good big movies. And one is The Frighteners, which I thought was a great movie. And it's Michael J. Fox as somebody who can see ghosts. He gets into a car accident. His wife dies and he can see ghosts. And so he uses the fact that he can see ghosts to make money. Uh huh. He has his ghost friends like go into a place, scare the crap out of people, and then they hire him to be the medium or the the exorcist to get the ghosts out. So he can see them and does it. And then he ends up having to fight Gary Busey's son, Jake Busey, who's like a psycho serial killer in the movie, in the afterlife. So he has to give himself a near-death experience and die to become a ghost, to fight Jake Busey, and then has to be revived 10 minutes later. So he has, so he has only enough time before he gets brain damage. In that. So they do that in that movie, too, The Frighteners, where he has to mm, force himself okay. to have a near-death experience so he can die, fight the bad guy, and then come back to life. Okay. Now, speaking of Jake Busey, he looks just like his dad, Gary. <laughs> yes. And Gary's everybody's favorite. I mean, obviously, he's, uh, you've probably seen him in the Amazon Fire Stick commercials. <laughs> he obviously died a couple of times because he was really into to cocaine. So he rode the white line a, a few too many times. He had a drug overdose. Uh, he had cancer. Mm-hmm. But he also got into a, car, a motorcycle accident in 1988. And I remember, okay. seeing, I remember seeing this on Entertainment Tonight because I used to watch Entertainment Tonight with Mary Hartley. <laughs> um, so let's read he's, he's riding his 750 pound Harley Davidson without wearing a helmet 
and he crashes traveling 50 miles an hour. He's flung over the top of his motorcycle. His head hits the curb. He splits his skull from the right temple to the top of his head, knocks a hole in his head as big as a 50-cent piece. While undergoing brain surgery, he has a near-death experience, and here's how he describes it. When I went to the other side, there were balls of light in the air, and three of them came down to my essence. I was about a foot long and a quarter of an inch wide. I wasn't a boy or a girl. I had no emotions from earth, and the light on the left spoke to me in an androgynous voice, in thought telling me what I've been doing was good, direction I was going in, good, ups and downs, downs. What comes with the dinner on the unconscious menu? Sorry, it's Gary Busey talking about a near-death experience. It's all going to be kind of cryptic. (laughs) The light also says to him, where are you going now? You need to look for help in the spiritual realm. And the voice says, you may come with us now or return to your body and continue your destiny. It's your choice. And he says they were angels, but they didn't appear in the form people see on Christmas cards. These angels floated around me and carried nothing but love and warmth. And this love is unconditional. I died after surgery and I went to the other side and I had quite a journey that started me in a new door of my life. Understanding that there's more here than I thought there was and that's the way with everybody truly. There's more in you than you think there is and the giving and the loving you have and not taking things personally and not taking things seriously will take you to a place of calm and relaxation where everything is okay. And you can watch your Amazon fire stick. No, <laughs> but... <laughs> Nice. No, he became like a, you know, like a Christian speaker after that. Like he, wow, born again, Gary Busey. Gosh. Well, you know, it is cool when people at least share their experience like that. Yeah. Because you got to wonder how many other people have had the experience, but just were too scared to say anything because of criticism they would get for admitting to something that seems very out there. Well, Tracy Morgan, he said he had a near-death experience. And so this is more recent. So, you know Tracy Morgan from Saturday Night Live, right? Yep. Okay, so June 7th, 2014, Tracy Morgan gets in a car accident on the New Jersey Turnpike. And he's got a brain injury, broken leg, broken limbs. His friend dies in the car crash. Mm, So sad. And he spends more than a week in a medically induced coma. He awakes, he's blind for almost a week. And he's got to go into recovery for a really long time. He goes in an interview with Oprah. And, you know, he said, when you're in a coma for eight to 10 days, you're basically knocking on the door. I don't know if I was in the coma or in and out, but I remember I was talking to my dad. He had this green thing on. I remember him saying, I'm not ready for you, son. I started crying so hard, probably harder than I cried at his funeral. I just kept saying, dad, he was my best friend. Aww. He said, I've been to the other side and I came back with gifts. And these jokes I'm giving you, they're gifts. But he also said that God talked to him. And said, your room ain't ready. I still got something for you to do. And that's it. He said he's become a better human being uh, than he was. And that he's just trying to be a better person after his near-death experience. So, man, and you look and a lot of Johnny Cash had a near-death experience. You know, he talks about, you remember Walk the Line, right? In the movie? Yes. Mm -hmm. Walk the Line when Johnny's just a, you know, like 12-year-old. His brother Jack dies, gets, you know, cut in half in the sawmill or whatever. And then he's just spending a week in pain until he dies. And, you know, Johnny says that on his deathbed, his brother Jack saw heaven, saw angels, was talking about meeting 
their dead relatives and everything. And then one time, like Johnny Cash was trying to commit suicide in a cave in Tennessee in 1968 when he's trying to quit drugs, but it doesn't work. And so he's all on all kinds of drugs. And he goes in this cave, tries to lose himself. He thinks he's just going to die in there. And he said he felt God in his heart and that God like re, you know, reignited his you know, flame to live. And hmm. uh, he was lost in the cave for a long time. But he said he saw this light that shouldn't have been there, felt the breeze, and that rebirthed him. So he saw God in a cave in 1968, didn't do drugs for a while, didn't do amphetamines. And then 1988, he had another near-death experience where he talks about seeing a peaceful light. And he was even angry that he had to come back from the, you know, from the other side. So even Johnny Cash, George Foreman had a near-death experience. George Foreman. Yeah, he did. He did. What happened was he fell on his grill. Oh, gosh, no. And it, you know. Oh, you got me for a second there. <laughs> no, he really <laughs> fell on his grill. He fell on his grill. And what happened was is it got all the fat out of him. No. Oh, stop it. So he says, instantly, I was transported into a deep, dark void, like a bottomless pit. I was suspended in emptiness with nothing over my head or under my feet. This was a place of total isolation, cut off from everything and everyone. It can only be described as a vacant space of extreme hopelessness. I knew I was dead, and this wasn't heaven. Sorrow beyond description engulfed my soul. If you multiplied every disturbing and frightening thought that you've ever had during your entire life, that wouldn't come close to the panic I felt. Although I couldn't see anyone, I was aware of other people in this terrible place. The place reeked with the putrid smell of death. This place was a vacuum without light, love, or happiness. In that place, I had no hope for tomorrow or of ever getting out. And he said that he screamed with all his might, I don't care if this is a death, I still believe in God. And a gigantic hand reached out into the darkness and pulled him out of the void. And then he was back in his body. Wow, what happened to him that he... Well, I told you what happened to him. No, he didn't fall on his grill. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> he collapsed to the floor. Um, in 1977, Foreman was in a boxing match against Jimmy Young. It lasted for 12 rounds, and it resulted in him, Foreman, losing in a decision. After the fight, he returned to his hot dressing room. The air conditioning wasn't working, and it was super hot, and he paced back and forth in the room trying to cool down. He said he'd never been so hot in his life. Suddenly, he was overcome with the fear that he was about to die, and then he collapsed. So oh. he uh, had some kind of seizure or whatever. Yeah. And he said he died on the floor there in Puerto Rico. So, I mean, George Foreman, Elvis, said he had a near-death experience. Hey, <laughs> baby. Yeah, hey, baby. Oh, man. You won't believe what I saw. <laughs> nope. Also, <laughs> listen to this. People said they saw Elvis... When they had a near-death experience themselves. Okay, that's, that's cool. <laughs> so he's waiting on the other side to welcome people? That's pretty cool. Yeah, but Elvis, I mean, I guess he got St. Peter's job. <laughs> where he's like, hey, baby, welcome to heaven, man. Um, for example, uh, according to Dr. Melvin Morrison, his book on near-death experiences entitled Transformed by the Light. A 45-year-old Midwestern teacher saw Elvis in an intense light during her near-death experience. The woman had met the king when she was a child, and this is what she says. I entered into a dark tunnel, and suddenly I was in a place filled up with love and a beautiful bright light. The place seemed holy. My father, who had died two years earlier, was there, as were my grandparents. Everyone was happy to see me, but my father told me it was not my time and I'd be going back. 
just as I turned to go, I caught sight of Elvis. He was standing in this place of intense bright light. He just came over to my, took my hand and said, Hi, Bev. You remember me? And so she saw the king and then she went back to earth. Wow. So who knows what will happen if you have a near-death experience. You might see the king. Yeah. But if you you do have one, please share it with us because it's fascinating. Or if you've had one. (laughs) Right. And we want to hear if you've met Elvis on the other side because I think that's who's waiting for us. Like some people see their grandfather, some people see, you know, their family members, some people see their deceased spouses, some people see the king. And uh, I just love it. I just love it. Yeah, that's great. It's encouraging. You might see Elvis and have a near-death experience if you go see Flatliners this weekend. And we'd love to hear what you think about the movie. I'm definitely going to probably go see it. Maybe not this weekend, but very soon. This weekend we're super busy because we got the old Baraboo Inn and we'll be playing and going the world's largest ghost hunt. Yes. So we'll be hunting our own near-death experiences this weekend at OBI. Anyway, so make sure if you saw Flatliners, let us know what you thought about it. You can tweet us at Other Side Talk. It's the place to do it. You know, we're talking about people that don't want to go to the other side. They want to come back from the dead. They're not ready to go yet. And that's what this week's song's about. So this is a Sunspot song that we wrote a few years back and it was all about just it doesn't matter how much pain what you have to endure anything like that don't pull the plug and that's what this song is about not pulling the plug about coming back about not accepting the feet it's it's the you know dylan thomas's do not go gently into that good night that's kind of where it gets the inspiration from this is sunspot with preemptive strike Go check 
Listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Hey, Mike. Hey, what? Before you come back from Canada, we have to do something real quick here. What do I gotta do, eh? We gotta make sure that we let our Patreon supporters know how much we appreciate them. Oh, we love them so much. Seriously. And an extra special thanks to Patreon member Ned who is contributing at a level where he gets a personal shout-out every single episode. Thank you, Ned. Thank you very much, Dr. Ned, and thank you to all our Patreons. You guys are a boot, my favorite people in the world. So if you would like to kick in a loony or a toonie and join our wonderful community, how can they do that, Mike? Just visit othersidepodcast.com slash donate. All right, we'll see you on the other side of the border, Mike. Ha ha! Hey, baby. Oh, man, you won't believe what I saw. It's everything you love about Kevin Bacon in a hairstyle.